Let me uh, read our passage over us this morning. We're going to be in Joshua 10, verses 1 through 8 is the reading right now. And the word of the Lord says this, As soon as Adonizedek, king of Jerusalem, heard how Joshua had captured Ai and devoted it to destruction, doing to Ai and its king as he had done to Jericho and its king, and how the inhabitants of Gibeon had made peace with Israel and were among them, he feared greatly. Because Gibeon was a great city, like one of the royal cities, because it was greater than Ai, and all its men were warriors. So Adonizedek, king of Jerusalem, sent to Hoam, king of Hebron, and Purim, king of Jarmuth, and Japhia, king of Lashes, and Debir, king of Eglon, saying, come up, to, come up to me and help me, and let us strike Gibeon, for it has made peace with Joshua and with the people of Israel." Then the five kings of the Amorites, the king of Jerusalem, the king of Hebron, the king of Jermuth, the king of Lashish, the king of Eglon, gathered their forces and went up with all their armies and encamped against Gibeon and made war against it. And the men of Gibeon sent to Joshua at the camp in Gigal, saying, Do not relax your hand from your servants. Come up quickly, come up to us quickly and save us and help us. For all the kings of the Amorites who dwell in the hill country are gathered against us. So Joshua went up from Gilgal, he and all the people of war with him, and all the mighty men of valor. And the Lord said to Joshua, do not fear them, for I've given them into your hands. Not a man of them shall stand before you. This is the word of the Lord. As you go to your seat, let's pray. Father, we we need you. Help us to see you more clearly in your good word. Help us to have more knowledge and affection and a heart for Jesus Christ. Spirit, we pray that you would help us in this moment, in the next several minutes. Uh, I pray that you would take the words that come out of my mouth, the gospel, I pray, is uh, articulated clearly, and that you would do the business of changing hearts as you are pleased to do. We need you. Thank you for this time. It's in Christ we pray. Amen. Uh, Before I get into the sermon, I want to remind everyone that tomorrow is our collective day of fasting at City Church. We do this the last Monday of every month, generally, and so tomorrow we are fasting over forgiveness. It's a big deal. It's a big uh, idea and reality and really command that we are given in the Scripture to forgive one another as we've been forgiven in Christ. And even though it is a command and even though it is something that we are called to do, it's not at all easy to do so many times, especially when those who were or are closest to us have sinned against us in ways that make forgiveness hard. So tomorrow as you fast, maybe from food or drink or whatever it could be, uh, this is what I want us to meditate upon, want us to pray about as a body, is forgiveness. Who, who might the Spirit be, even in this moment, bringing to mind that that forgiveness has been hard. And I want to have all grace for us in this as well, and that because it's hard, that this is not a moment to be harsh about, you need to forgive because God has commanded you to forgive, although that is true. He has commanded us to forgive one another. But to to have that posture of prayer and even the, the lean on one another in this body. And be reminded that uh, where it's hard for you, that your brothers and sisters are praying for you tomorrow as we are praying for our own hearts. Uh, so that's what we want to spend our Mondays considering together. As we get into this text here in Joshua 10, I want to ask you a question. What was the best day of your life? What's the best day of your life? For some of you, it, it might come quickly. You know immediately what the best day of your life 
was. Maybe it was your wedding day. Maybe it was a, a day that uh, illness was declared gone from your body. Uh, there's a variety of ways in which you could think back on your life and say that was the perfect day. And when we hear people talk about their, the best day they've ever had, a lot of times they, they will mention the other aspects of that day that made it perfect. Maybe the weather was just right and the people that were a part of that day were all operating in harmony and there was great peace and joy. It was the kind of day that you wish you could just freeze in time and you wish you could relive over and over again. What is the best day of your life? Well, in Joshua chapter 10, this is one of those days for the people of Israel. This is a remarkable day for the people of God. In fact, I, I would imagine that a lot of the people of Israel who were there on this day look back and go, that was the best day of my life. Now, uh, if you look in your Bible, a lot of you probably have the ESV translation. That's what we read from here at City Church. If you look in your Bible at Joshua chapter 10, will you notice the heading that's there in chapter 10? Now, the headings that the different translators put in the Bible, those are, those are not inspired texts. That's just what the author, uh, the translator of the different uh, versions of the Bible kind of summarize. And so what does yours say? Does it say the sun stands still? That's what mine says. The sun, S-U-N, stands still. I think this is one of the times where actually the chapter heading in our Bibles is somewhat unhelpful. Now, if this is the best day in Israel's life, and some, some would say that, this is a remarkable day in the history of Israel, but it's not, I will argue today, that's not the reason. The sun stood still. That, that sounds pretty fascinating, and we'll get into that, but this was a remarkable day in the history of Israel. This was a special day, but for a different reason. Now, chapter 10, as we get into the text this morning, this is a close companion uh, to the text that we were in last week in chapter 9. Uh, and so if you weren't here last week, just to recap briefly, uh, last week we looked at uh, the city of Gibeon and the Gibeonites who deceive Joshua and Israel and basically tell them that they are a people from a far away land instead of neighbors to Israel there in the land of Canaan. And the people of Israel make a covenant with them. So Israel covenants a covenant of peace with the people of Gibeon, saying that they will do no harm to them. Uh, instead, uh, the, the consequence for this deception, the curse that we read about, is that the Gibeonites will remain slaves or servants to the house of God for the people of Israel from here on out. Today, we're going to see just how strong this covenant is. Because as we just heard here at the very beginning of chapter 10, there's five enemy kings, there's five cities that are mentioned here in the land of Canaan, and the five kings of these cities see that Gibeon has made peace with Israel and they're greatly distressed. Israel has, has made peace with the Gibeonites, and so we see that Joshua is going to come to the defense of the Gibeonites, and God is going to lead a massive victory against these five enemy kingdoms. So as we look at chapter 10 this morning, I want to give you the main ideas I try to do every week. It's on the handout, the announcement sheet that you got on your way in. If you want to take notes, we hope that you would feel the freedom to do that. Let me share the main idea. This is the story about the day a man spoke, and God listened, and Satan was silenced. 
This was a day that a man spoke. God listened and Satan was silenced. And as we walk through this story, you'll see three different uh, blanks to fill in there, three different points that I want us to see in our text this morning. The first one is that Satan speaks before defeat. And then Joshua prays, God acts to defeat. And finally, Satan is silenced after defeat. You can see that Satan is, is talking at the beginning, but at the end of our story, we'll see that he is quiet. And in between, Joshua prays and God acts. Now, we uh, just read here at the beginning of chapter 10, uh, familiar language. This is now the third time that we have read this type of language in the book of Joshua where various kings have heard what has happened and have a response. And so this time around, the enemy has heard that there's been peace made with the Gibeonites. And this, as I mentioned, is distressing for them. This is alarming. Uh, in fact, the, one of the main reasons is that strategically where the city of Gibeon is located in the land of Canaan, it's in the hill country, it's really very central. And so strategically, if Gibeonites have made peace with Israel uh, in terms of military strategy, this is disheartening for the enemy kingdoms. They have a foothold in a very advantageous part of the land of Canaan. And so in great fear, the, the king of Jerusalem, uh, Adonai Zedek, speaks. And you could hear as he speaks the panic in his voice because you could see him say to these other four kings, come up here quickly, help me. Satan speaks before defeat. Now, I'm not going to spend a, a whole lot of time on this point, uh, but I'm going to make the argument because these five kingdoms really represent effectively the kingdom of the serpent. This is what we've been seeing all throughout the book of Joshua. What I hope that we have been able to see is that these enemy kingdoms are representing Satan himself. And so when we hear the words of the king of Jerusalem, we're hearing the words of Satan himself. Satan is saying, come, let, let us make war. Let us make war on these people because they are at peace with the people of God. Let us make war on them. In fact, this is one of the, the few places in the book of Joshua where we actually hear what these enemy kings say. That we would actually hear what comes out of their mouth, but they're saying it, this king is saying it right before he is defeated. Satan is mouthy. He's mouthy. He's been defeated. Today, Satan has been defeated, but he still likes to talk. In fact, Satan has come into the scene in Genesis 3 talking. We know that he is desperate because he is defeated. He does not stand a chance against our good God, and yet all he has is to be mouthy, to talk. Before Christ returns to once and for all destroy Satan by throwing him into an eternal lake of fire, Satan is in panic today. He's panicked and he's mouthy. He likes to talk a big game. He likes to talk to us. He likes to talk to you. In fact, maybe he's even trying to talk to you now. And if you're not now, certainly when you leave this place, he likes to talk but he knows his time is up very soon. 
as we continue to read this story, we will see that these five kings, again, who represent the kingdom of the serpent, these five kings are about to find out how mighty our God is. So again, the Gibeonites appeal to Joshua for help because of the covenant, and Joshua is prepared to fight on their behalf. And so this scene that we're about to get into is kind of the stuff of Braveheart. This is that, that big scene before the war uh, where all the troops are rallied and God is speaking. In fact, God again tells Joshua what he has already told him in chapter 1. If you go all the way back to chapter 1, he says, Do not fear them, for I've given them into your hands. Not a man of them shall stand before you. This is our good God repeating himself, reassuring Joshua and the people of Israel, I am with you. These guys don't stand a chance. Let's keep reading beginning in verse 9, what happens next. So Joshua came up, came up upon them suddenly, having marched up all night from Gigal, and the Lord threw them into a panic before Israel, who struck them with a great blow at Gibeon and chased them by the way of the ascent of Beth Horon and struck them as far as Azekah and Makedah. And as they fled before Israel, while they were going down the ascent of Beth Horon, the Lord threw down large stones from heaven on them as far as Azekah, and they died. There were more who died because of the hailstones than the sons of Israel killed with the sword. The Lord is strong and mighty. The Lord is mighty in battle. This is the king of glory. The nations rage and the peoples plot in vain and the Lord laughs in derision from heaven. We see it play out here. Who's the main actor in this story? It's God. The Lord, the Lord is the one who acts in this battle. The Lord throws them into a panic. The Lord chases them, strikes them down. The Lord throws stones, and we find out they are hailstones from heaven. The Lord is the main actor in this story. I love how the author makes it very clear in verse 11. In case you had any question, who should get the credit for this victory? The author flat out says, more died because of the hailstones than because of the people using a sword. The people that God had given hundreds and hundreds of years to repent from their ongoing sin and wickedness, these people who truly represented the kingdom of the serpent were routed by the great I am. The Lord has done this. The Lord has defeated the enemy. Now I mentioned that the second point this morning is that Joshua prays and God acts to defeat. And so we certainly see God acting in this part of Joshua 10. But you might be wondering, where do I see that Joshua prays? Well, let's keep reading. Here's verse 12. At that time, Joshua spoke to the Lord in the day when the Lord gave the Amorites over to the sons of Israel. And he said in the sight of Israel, Sun, stand still at Gibeon, and moon in the valley of Ajalon. And the sun stood still, and the moon stopped until the nation took vengeance on their enemies. Is this not written in the book of Jashar? The sun stopped in the midst of the heaven and did not hurry to set for about a whole day. There has been no day like it before or since 
when the Lord heeded the voice of a man, for the Lord fought for Israel. So Joshua returned and all Israel with them to camp at Gilgal. Joshua spoke to the Lord. Now, even though these verses are following the verses that we just read, this actually didn't happen after all the fighting. This happens at the same time. Joshua prays. Joshua speaks to the Lord as the battle gets underway. He prays. Can you imagine being a part of the army of Israel that day when you uh, see the, the people of these five kingdoms come upon you and you're marching up to meet them in a battle? You have your sword in your hand. Can you imagine turning and looking and Joshua is bowing his head? Like, I thought this was a war. I thought we were going to war. We have swords. What are you doing? What is happening in this moment? There's something more important going on here, is there not? Joshua is praying. Joshua is praying to the Lord, and the Lord listens and responds to his prayer. We see that in verse 12, verses 12 and 13, that Joshua apparently has prayed to the Lord for him to supernaturally cause the sun and the moon to stop that day. And we see that the Lord hears this prayer and commands the sun to stop and the moon to stop. Now, there's been a lot of ink spilled over the centuries about what exactly is going on here. What exactly is happening? How do we explain what happened on this day? Did God literally stop the earth from spinning so that the sun stood still? Is this describing uh, an eclipse? Some have argued that this is uh, some type of uh, eclipse that happened that day, just perfectly timed. Uh, some would argue that this is figurative language. This is poetry. So literally, this, these things didn't happen, but figuratively, they did. Uh, he mentions, uh, the author mentions this book of Jashar. This was uh, a book that was probably well known at the time. It's not a part of scripture, but even in this book, it reiterated what happened on this day was significant. Now, could God have stopped the sun in its track and the moon in its tracks? Absolutely he could. He absolutely could. Why would he not be able to? He is the one that put them in the sky in the first place. So of course he could have done any number of things to cause the sun to stand still and the moon to stop. Nothing is too hard for God. And so I, it is important to really meditate and pray and consider what happened. Did the sun literally stop or is this some type of poetic device that the author is using? But notice what makes this day remarkable. What makes this day special? And there's never been a day like this. The author says there's never been a day like this. Yeah, because the, the sun stopped and the, and the moon stood still for a whole day. No, there's never been a day like this where a man spoke and God obeyed him. There's never been a day like this. The sun and the moon standing still. Can you believe that? It's really cool. Yes, but God heeded the voice of a man. Gibeon cries out to Joshua, help, come and save us. And his next move is to pray to the Lord. And the Lord carried out what Joshua prayed for and then destroyed all the enemy kingdoms. Joshua prayed. God acted. 
This was a day where there was perfect unity between God and man. Perfect unity between Joshua and the Lord he was praying to. And look how it played out in a glorious way throughout this entire day. A man prayed, God listened, and the enemy was defeated. A praying man and a listening God. Some of you uh, maybe have in mind people in your life, maybe, maybe in uh, this time of your life, or maybe when you were growing up, that you would call prayer warriors. You have anybody like that that you can think of? Prayer warriors. Here's the perfect prayer warrior. Prayer warriors who labor and just are known for praying for you and for your family and for the church. In fact, I was listening to a podcast this week uh, where, the, where the man was talking about a prayer warrior in his church growing up who just recently died. She was 104 years old when she died, and he said she would pray for the church over and over and over again. She would tell the pastor that, he, that she was praying for him and praying for his family, and this man said, I feel a little bit more vulnerable now that she has died. Prayer warriors. And there was never a day like this. That's what the author says. Never been a day like it before or since. And there was never a day like this true until the greater Joshua arrives. When the greater Joshua shows up, when Jesus shows up, he comes interceding for his people. When Jesus comes and lives our life here on earth. He comes as, an, as a man praying. He comes as a man interceding for the sheep without a shepherd. This is the Jesus that prayed that Peter's faith would not fail despite Satan sifting him. This is the Jesus that prayed for more laborers for the harvest. This is the Jesus that prayed for the ones his father had given him. And this is the risen and ascended Jesus that is right now, praying for you and me in heaven. Our Joshua is praying for us right now. There's not a day that has gone by that a man isn't praying to God and that God isn't heeding that man's voice. And his name is Jesus. And so we cry out to our Joshua, like the Gibeonites cried out to Joshua in the Old Testament. We cry out to our Jesus, help, save us, come quickly, Jesus. And Jesus is pleased to pray and advocate on our behalf. Isn't that good news this morning? Do we, do we consider the ongoing ministry of Jesus Christ for his people that is happening in heaven, that in our trials, in our afflictions, in our spiritual warfare, that Jesus is our great mediator. He is still at this time mediating the great covenant of grace with his Father. Not that Father God needs to be convinced to love us and to help us. The Father does love us. That's why he sent the Son. It's not that the Father doesn't love us, he does, but that Jesus lives and loves to intercede for his beloved. 19th century Scottish pastor named Robert Murray McShane, some of you might be familiar with her, there's a, or with him, there's a McShane Bible reading plan that a lot of people follow throughout the year. Uh, he was a great pastor in Scotland, and he once said this, quote, if I could hear Christ 
praying for me in the next room, I would not fear a million enemies. Yet the distance makes no difference. He is praying for me. And he is praying for us. Jesus is praying for us right now. We are not, we're not facing off like the people of Israel are in Joshua chapter 10 with flesh and blood. But we are facing off with the rulers of the air, the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly place. They are among us. They are family even right now among us. Do you realize that? That right now Jesus is at the right hand of the Father praying that the word of God would prevail over our enemies. He's praying that, that we would stay alert to the schemes of the enemy. And we, we, we do, and we can, and we know because Jesus is our victor. He's our mighty victor. He has won the war. And yet we know that we are still caught up in these cosmic battles. It's in the invisible realm. That's what's happening right now. That we come and we gather on a Sunday and God is praying for us. Jesus is praying for us. He's praying that Satan wouldn't snatch the word of God from your mind right now. He's praying that you wouldn't be, even right now, distracted or bored or wandering, your mind wandering to what you're going to have for lunch or what you're going to do tomorrow. But he is praying that you would be changed by his sovereign word. He's praying for us right now. He's praying for you, and God listens and responds. Just like with Peter, Jesus is praying that your faith will not fail in the midst of Satan's attacks. He is always joyfully and lovingly representing us to the Father in heaven. So let us run to him. Let's throw ourselves upon his mercy. Let us cry for help, because we need it. Let us depend on him like the Gibeonites depended on Joshua. And here's the amazing thing this morning, family. When we pray in Christ's name, our Father hears us. This is the wonderful reality of our union with Jesus Christ. That when we pray in Christ's name, our Father hears us and responds. So the question I have is, why would we not pray? Why would we not pray if that is the reality that we have? That he is able to do far more abundantly than all we ask. So are we in the, the habit of modeling Jesus by interceding for one another? Do we pray for one another? Do we pray that Satan would be held at bay in one another's lives? I love what Charles Spurgeon said. He's a, another a British preacher. This, this is what he said about praying as a church. He says, quote, as a church... We have been specially favored, but we have not exhausted the possibilities of prosperity or the resources of heavenly power. There is a future for us if we pray. Greater things than these lie behind that curtain. No hands can unveil them but the hand of prayer. The singular blessings which have rested upon us in the past call us to pray. The marked prosperity and unity of the present invite us to pray. And the hopes of the future encourage us to pray. Behold, the Lord says to you, ask and ye shall receive. Brothers and sisters, slack not your asking. But for the love of souls, multiply your petitions and increase your importunity. Which basically means persistence. What he's saying is, 
Look at all that we have available to us when we pray. We can link arms with all the saints in the past. We can know what's happening here in in the present and in the future. Know the encouragement that comes with prayer. As we love one another, have us multiply our prayers to God and know that he hears them and responds. Joshua prayed. God acts and finally Satan is silenced in defeat. Starting in the rest of this chapter, in verse 16 onward, we're going to read what happens to these five kings that were introduced introduced to at the beginning of the chapter. Remember I said at the beginning of the chapter, they're talking, right? They're mouthy. They're in panic. And beginning in verse 16, we read that these five kings flee to a cave to hide. And Joshua tells some of his men to roll a stone in front of the mouth of that cave, basically to trap them in there while they continue to fight. While they finish up the fighting, these five kings are scared and hiding out in a cave, and they're stuck there. After the fighting is complete, the men return to Joshua at this cave. Joshua tells some of the men to bring the five kings out of the cave, and let's read what happens beginning in verse 24 to 27. It says this, And when they brought those kings out of the cave to Joshua, Joshua summoned all the men of Israel and said to the chiefs of the men of war who had gone with him, Come near, put your feet on the necks of these kings. Then they came near and put their feet on their necks. And Joshua said to them, Do not be afraid or dismayed. Be strong and courageous. For thus the Lord will do to all your enemies against whom you fight. And afterward, Joshua struck them and put them to death. And he hanged them on five trees. And they hung on the trees until evening. But at the time of the going down of the sun, Joshua commanded. And they took them down from the trees and threw them into the cave where they had hidden themselves. And they set large stones against the mouth of the cave, which remains to this very day. We have another stack of stones. I've been tracking along with this in the book of Joshua. This is a familiar metaphor or familiar occurrence where stones are stacked. And these stones are stacked to mark a significant victory for the people of God and a significant defeat for the Canaanites. This is a glorious victory for Israel. And here we see the words of God that we read earlier in chapter 10 fulfilled when he told Joshua that indeed not a man of them shall stand before you. And here we see that they they don't. Instead, these five kings find themselves lying on the ground with a foot on their head. They were made footstools. The victors trampling underfoot the head of their enemies. We see the the head of the serpent crushed in this story. Satan is silenced. Our modern sensibilities have a hard time, no doubt. We read a story like this and there is something in us that gets a little squeamish and gets, "Uh, I don't don't know about all this, seems pretty, pretty brutal to me. Friend, I've said this before, I'll say it again. We want God to hate sin and wickedness this much. We want him to. We do. Because God is jealous for his holiness and for his great name and because he loves us. 
Because he loves us, he hates sin and wickedness. And so we should celebrate that he has destroyed the kingdom of the serpent. We should celebrate it. The rest of chapter 10, if you go on, you see conquest of the southern Canaan. Chapter 11, conquest in northern Canaan. 12 is a list of all the kings and kingdoms that Israel defeated. So the rest of 10, 11, and 12, we see this ongoing pattern of victory over the enemies of God. But the most important imagery in this season of Israel happens here in this section we just read in chapter 10. This is the most impactful imagery here for the people of God seeing five kings hanging from a tree. Five kings. This is a public proclamation of sure victory. This is a powerful image. In the book of Joshua, we read that there are six kings hanged. We read about the king of Ai hanged at the end of chapter 8, and we read of five more here in chapter 10. Six kings hanged on a tree. And the number six in the Bible often represents an incomplete or an insufficient number. Six kings are hanged from a tree. Six kings are cursed. So the question we might ask is, will there be a seventh? Will there be a seventh king that hangs from a tree to make Israel's victory complete? And indeed, there will be another king, but he will be the king of the Jews, and he will hang on a wooden cross. So, who could have imagined that true victory of Satan and his kingdoms would come in the humiliation of the Son of God? The Son of God hanged from a tree. And there truly was no day like that day when God's son was stopped, when the curtain was torn and the stones of God were hurled at his son. When God hurled stones at Jesus, there he stood still in the place of sinners to satisfy the wrath of God against ungodliness. Brothers and sisters, that day truly was the best day of our lives. Whatever you thought of at the beginning of the message as to what is the best day of your life, I'm here to argue that that day when the seventh king was hanged from a cross was the best day of our life because it was that day that we were saved. It was that day that our sin, the penalty for our unrighteousness and disobedience was paid for in Jesus Christ. We preach Christ crucified because Christ crucified preaches to us. I don't know if you've ever thought of the cross as Christ's pulpit, where he preaches the good news of grace for sinners. And the stone was rolled away from his tomb, and so he is alive. Hallelujah, he is alive. And he will come again. He will come again with a sword to finish the job. He will come to wipe away Satan and his minions from our presence forever, and we will stand with him in victory over Satan forever. We have that confidence this morning. Let's pray. Father, we are grateful that you have defeated our enemies, all of them. And even now, as 
as Satan is at work to try to deceive and try to uh, pluck away those who you have grabbed, we know that he's not able to. Those that you have saved, you have saved forever. As we endure in you and your, your love, as we are sustained by you, Holy Spirit, and as we are advocated for Jesus, you are praying for us even right now at the right hand of the Father. What an amazing day this was that we read about in the book of Joshua, that God listened to a man's voice and obeyed it, and that all your enemies are defeated, and that in a Christ, as we are united to him, that we too are victors in him. I pray that you would help us to be reminded of this throughout our week when we are tempted to believe otherwise. Will you help us when we feel like the enemy is prevailing over us? Will you bring to mind our good Jesus who has defeated Satan and death itself? And will you encourage us all the more to pray for one another, to intercede on one another's behalf, knowing that Satan is at work still, but anticipating the day where he will no longer be a presence in our world or in our life as you make all things new, as you consummate the kingdom and we reign and rule with you forever. Thank you that we have all these good assurances in your good word, by the power of your spirit, and as we see them in the Christ himself, and it's in his name we pray, amen.